Welcome to Jolty, a podcast to lift your perspective above this jolty moment and focus on the ultimate direction of our business and personal lives. Hi, I'm Maggie Wilkinson, CEO of Athena Global Advisors, and I'm excited to be here with proven futurists and longtime friends and collaborators, Faith Popcorn and Adam Hamps. In today's brand new episode, Survival Amnesia, we're exploring past leadership practices and why they don't work in this new topsy-turvy world in which we find ourselves. And with that, let's jolt. Adam, over to you. Thank you, Maggie. And hi, Faith. How are you doing? In the middle of a hurricane. Hey, yeah. It's jolting. Yeah, it is. Mother Nature is jolty. We're calling this survival amnesia because we're in a moment where as you said, it's topsy-turvy. So it used to be that to run a business successfully, you brought your old patterns forward, you remembered, but today to succeed in the future, you have to forget. You have to forget all the old bromides and rules and uh, parameters that you were trained and reinvent yourself in real time as the world is changing. You know, we're seeing with a lot of the CEOs that we're talking to, there's a real struggle with it. I don't want to be ageist, but let's say a lot of them are over... 51 um, or 61 and they they're just thinking like well what how do I do this you know what about hierarchy what about if I you know call on the youngest person which we're going to talk about later or the oldest person um what about if I want to fire somebody can I do that in this time is that insensitive and a lot of people are thinking and I think this is a tragic error that they're gonna when everything you know clears up they're going to go back to 2020, that they're going to pick up where we left off. And that is the biggest jolty mistake of all. I think the older you are, and it's, it is the way it is, the more you get ingrained into your behaviors and patterns and the deeper the rut that you create for yourself. And then the harder it is to react to a jolt and the more tempted you are to think it's going to revert back. But I think you're absolutely right. We are not going back. Maybe we're going back an inch, but we're going forward a mile. You're so right. And I see a lot of like men can't wait to get out of their basements. I'm going to divide this by gender because the kids are driving them crazy and they're getting a taste of what it's like to be around kids. But a lot of women are saying, you know, this works for me. I can like work and do kids and talk to some friends and then go back to work, which is how they like to work anyway. So there may be a divide in the return to offices if there ever was, is one. And we could talk about that. I, I think you're right. I also think it, 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 the burden on women can be greater if the guys don't pick up any of it because they think that often just because they're home doesn't mean they have to up their participation game, but they do. And I hear from a lot of women that now they're doing everything and it's actually harder. Um, so it's complicated. Um, and the kids are home. My God, a perfect storm. Right. And and they're saying, like Facebook is saying, if you, ne- if you never want to come back, you don't have to come back. So how is that going to disturb emotional relationships? The, the kind of the smell we get from somebody for annoying them or for pleasing them, you know, that doesn't really communicate. They say it takes 20% more brain power to be on the Zoom. Yeah, I think that's true. And also, if you're distracted, the research shows it takes 15 minutes to get back to where you were before the distraction. So we lose a lot of productivity. The other thing is it's really unfair, I think, I want to hear what you think, for companies to say, if you want to come back, come back. Because all of a sudden now, right. the person who chooses not to come back is the wuss. They're the frightened one. They're not the strong, you yes. know, dedicated employee. That's wrong. You should not let people decide and create a two-tier system in a company, in my view. 
I think that's exactly right, except when the bosses say they're not coming back, then everybody feels okay. That's and, true. And the ones that are coming back are more desperate to get out of that basement. But no, you're absolutely right. When you give people a choice and if they choose to stay home, does that make them seem like lazy, incompetent, afraid? Not yeah. dedicated. No, right. And then people are also insecure because you, I'm sure you've been reading this too. If, when people stay at home, they don't have the ability to fake it as much as when they're in the office. You know, this thing called presenteeism where you kind of like are just there and nobody can really tell who's working and who isn't. Because when you're home and you're contributing in a more visible way or not, it does expose a lot of flaws in the system. There are so many decisions. Like I was on a call the other day and there were like four guys and one, one woman. And the four guys were on video and the other one, the woman was, had video off. And somebody said, oh, Maggie, where are you? So it was like video bullying. I said, like, if Maggie doesn't want to be on, she doesn't have to be on. But, you know, that makes us nervous. I don't, I don't like when people don't show their, and they go, I'm not camera ready. I mean, come on and get camera no, ready. No, camera I mean, ready right now. We've all gotten up from that. That ship has sailed. Hi, Brad. Hi. How are you, Maggie? There you are. Adam's going to give you a glowing introduction now. Are you ready? Oh, wow. We'll see about I'll be the judge of that. You're right. You should be. Okay, Addy, do the best you can. Brad Jakeman is truly one of the most sensitive and sophisticated business leaders in America. And I think those words don't often go together, but he's both. Uh, and we're really privileged to have him here. So he was most recently president of Pepsi Global Beverage. He ran the whole thing around the world. A big job. And he did brilliantly, of course. And before that, he was EVP at um, Activision Blizzard. And before that, he ran marketing at Macy's. And before that, he had a big job at Citibank uh, running marketing. So he's worked in every sector. And um, his perspective on how these jolts are changing the system are going to be terrific. And I'm sure you'll enjoy listening to him. We're very, very excited to have you, Brad. Yeah. The first thing we w I want to throw out at you is this. You know, CEOs got promoted from job to job to job because they managed the predictable pretty well. Now they've got to manage the unpredictable, as you said, you know, as they triage and as they move past that. So what are the characteristics you think of the CEOs that are better at tossing out what they learned and stepping boldly into the future? Is it psychographic? Is it generational? Some combination? What do you think? Look, I think firstly, um, and I would say this is true for CEOs. I would also say it's true for any successful professional now, given the operating environment. I think the ability to thrive in ambiguity is um, a critical leadership trait now, not just survive, but thrive. And there are some uh, leaders who actually thrive um, with a situation that is amorphous and, and fluid. And I think now and more than ever, um, CEOs have to be able to do that, particularly those CEOs who are working in big legacy organizations and industry where they have um, a lot of fixed variable. They have fixed asset bases. They have fixed um, employee, employee bases and so on. So, Brad, we've talked a lot privately, you, Faith, and I, about this notion of servant leadership, which is something that was exhibited um, very boldly at PepsiCo. So why don't you give a little more detail on what that means and why it's so important, particularly now? 
we had a term in kind of uh, North America beverages at PepsiCo where we had like a servant leadership model um, that was really meant that um, that the management team were spending a lot of time and had a culture of kind of taking the advice and guidance of the people who are subject matter experts and the people who are perhaps closer to the customer and the consumer. The most effective behaviors of leadership are to make sure that you are connected with the employees um, at all levels in your organization, if only because um, in many respects, the employees and kind of the middle and the front end of the organization in many industries resemble most your um, consumer. So it is a kind of an in-house focus group, if you like, when you are staying close to the issues that are important to them. Just to build on that quickly, all of a sudden, because of Zoom and the situation, CEOs have exposure to somebody who's two, three, four levels down that under normal circumstances, they wouldn't even know their name. Now they see this person is making a huge contribution and they want to elevate them. They want to recognize that, but it's a face point, but the structures and the HR parameters make that really difficult. I tell you, when you're in a Fortune 100 company these days, you have a talent conundrum. You are no longer viewed by the most talented people coming out of uh, tertiary education as the place to go work. You're, you're fighting a lot of sexier companies. So, And now more than ever, there are tools available to employees like Glassdoor, for instance, where they can go on and they can look at what the culture is of the organization they're joining. If you had one thing to say to one leader, one company, one person that really distills something that has been on your mind that you think somebody really needs to know, what, what would that be? That one moment of truth that you could reveal to somebody. I would choose the CEO community of uh, big companies and that one kind of moment of truth um, I think would be design for disruption, um, design a culture for disruption, design an organisation for, dis for disruption, design processes for disruption because COVID is disruptive, no doubt about it. Um, but it's not a one-off. We should start establishing um, some protocols, cultures um, around how we interact with each other. I've noticed that things that would normally be conference calls are now Zoom meetings. Um, things that could be covered by email now are Zoom meetings. And I think that people are spending so much time through their day staring at a backlit screen and not spending time kind of thinking through issues. So on the first day of you running that company, let's say the CEO goes like, you know, um, I'm going on a vacation, you're running that, what's the one thing to do to get that to happen? I think the first thing to do is to really um, analyze what it really took for the company to survive, what was an incredible period of time um, where essentially um, the economy was placed into an induced coma deliberately. Um, and consumer demand in many cases stopped 
um, the ability of uh, the normal processes and practices of doing business were completely thrown out the window. Um, so really, what I would do is I would ask for a full analytics and teardown process to happen so that I could understand what it was about the structure of this company, the culture of this company, uh, the individuals within this company that allowed extraordinary things to happen. Do a resiliency analysis and then scale it. Absolutely. And then, of course, and then I would also sit down with the head of HR and I would start building um, profiles of the type of people that I would want to have running the major functions and divisions of the company. I think many CEOs that I talk to um, and have talked to over the last four months have said one of the things they've been doing is really looking across the executive suite at those uh, people running their functions and their businesses that have really stepped up and thrived in this environment and those that have floundered. And I think that we are already starting to see if my kind of inbound phone calls are a reliable metric, we've seen a lot of C-level executive searches being, um, being instigated over the last my last couple of months. Hey, Brad, you spent so many years in food and really helping Pepsi innovate. Now you've got your own venture fund. What's driving this? What's the mission? And what can we expect from Rethink in the next months and years? So Rethink Food is about bringing better for you foods to more people by investing in the entire food uh, supply system and ecosystem that these entrepreneurs uh, rely on. So at Rethink Food, we look at agricultural technologies through to enterprise software, which reduces food waste. We look at packaging that reduces cost while improving um, its ecological and environmental impact on, uh, on society. We look at consumer packaged goods, obviously, and we look at ingredient companies. We are one of the few funds, if not the only fund I can think of, that has very deep and narrow domain expertise in food and beverage, but has a holistic approach to the system, um, anchored by a social mission to make better for you foods available to more people. So give me one more little thought on this. I mean, one like, I didn't know, my kid, uh, my 15-year-old first became a, she's a pescatarian. Then my 22-year-old became a pescatarian. And then I saw, you know, you see all these films about the processing, so I did too. And everybody here did. And I'm seeing a lot of revulsion, especially with COVID, because of the polluted um, beef, um, you know, factories and the chicken factories. And, like, you don't even feel safe eating it for the people that are handling it. What do you think the future of uh, different sorts of vegetarianism? I think there will only only be upside. I think that um, there are some physics issues here at play. So let's forget the societal issues. But um, in the next 20 years, we need to find a way to feed a billion more people on the planet when we have pretty much exhausted the use of arable land uh -huh. right now. So it can't be cows. Um, so um, exactly. So uh, or we cut down the Amazon and then we have different 
um, environmental issues around air quality. So let's just say we're dealing with the same amount of arable land. The question then becomes, are we using that arable land most efficiently in order to yield the amount of food necessary to feed a billion people? And the answer to that is no. So you have some physics at play there. When it comes to the consumer, um, it used to be that consumers had a fairly straightforward set of dimensions by which they made a choice. Um, they were around convenience, they were around price, they were obviously around taste, and they were around nutrition. Now we're finding that to be much more multidimensional. Now people are making choices around the effects on the environment as one thing. Um, people are now making choices around more humane um, choices. I sit on the board of the Humane Society in the US and we, we have seen a huge movement of people who are moving to non-animal proteins um, as a consequence of animal welfare issues. What is fascinating, interesting and exciting is that we have a whole wave of entrepreneurs who are stepping up to answer that need. And I love that it's happening as a consequence of consumer pull and not from kind of regulatory pressures and things like that. Um, uh, I, 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 that's the best way to drive kind of systemic change um, in a system when you have a kind of a wholesale consumer movement um, to actually change their eating habits and the, the profile of their demand. I would say, you know, there's no doubt plant-based meat, fish, lab-grown, younger people don't have a problem. In 10 years, that could be 20, 25% within certain segments of consumption. Yeah, you know, these leaders, 60 plus the white men you're talking about, they were talking to them, why aren't you leaning more to plant-based to go like, oh no, you know, like they don't get it. Well, it's about marketing though, to some degree. It's around generating trial. I mean, I have been, so impressed with the, um, the advances that have been made, particularly around taste and mouthfeel and the sensorial replication of, of animal proteins with plant-based proteins. And the fastest way to convince a non-believer that something is good is to have them experience it as good. And then hopefully that is one of the key drivers to their their mindset. Obviously, it has to be priced within there uh, to, to make it available. Obviously, it has to be um, distributed in places where they shop. Um, but they're all kind of, if you want, the left brain things that need to be sold for, which, which I believe at least are infinitely easier to solve for. I think they've done a brilliant job in Possible Foods and Beyond Meat um, in the deals they've made with Dunkin' Donuts, with Burger King. So in terms of trial, they are now, they went mass at the right time. And that was really smart. Before we go, you all, I've just got one question for Brad. Um, and, and Brad, thank you. I can't believe it's already time for us to be going. This has been fascinating. Brad, what do you think about the pronouncement that the Business Roundtable made this past fall, that the purpose of a corporation has to be about more than just profits? What are your thoughts on that? Indra was 10 years ahead of the Business Roundtable on this. One of 
Indra's uh, greatest strengths was the fact that she ran PepsiCo for the next 20 years, not for the next 20 days. She was already um, somewhat of a um, fascination to Wall Street being a non-white female CEO of a Fortune 100 company. And um, she was able to see the emerging talent in the organization, get to know them, hear their point of view. On a number of occasions, Indra actually requested me to bring in people in the organization that were in their early 20s in order to give her a point of view on something that was um, perhaps even irrelevant to what they were working on at the time. So while I absolutely applaud the Business Roundtable uh, for doing that, um, I and I'm very happy to see that companies are moving in that direction, um, I hardly would say it was revelatory or groundbreaking. So Brad, that was really interesting to get your perspective on Indra and on how important passion and purpose were to her and to you. And what that really does is brings us full circle back to the theme of our podcast, which is survival amnesia. And in this case, amnesia meaning you need to forget the old model, which is about profits at all costs and purpose and intention or all these nice touchy-feely things, but they don't matter. Part of, as I say, forgetting the past is entering into this new world where values and, and purpose matter. So thank you for closing us out with that insight. It was really fascinating to get your first row perspective on what it was like to work with Indra and at PepsiCo. We really deeply appreciate your time and your smarts. You brought all your smarts to this, to Jolty. Thank you so much. Faith, Adam, Brad, thank you so much for your time today. This was truly fascinating and Jolty conversation. Here's a jolt of some good news. Since we recorded our podcast, Brad has taken on a new role as senior advisor at Boston Consulting Group. BCG is lucky to have his wit and wisdom. Congratulations, Brad. Congratulations, Brad.